Hello, welcome to the Return on Character podcast. Uh, this is Dan Cooper. I am the CEO and founder of Rock Investments, uh, an investment strategy that allocates capital on the basis of the character of leadership in the public markets. I'm really honored and thrilled to have Al Buford with me today, uh, principally because of his extraordinary military background and his uh, perspective that I've been longing to get uh, on the military's uh, orientation around character and its importance. Al, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. It would be wonderful if you wouldn't mind, instead of me trying to share your story, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story as it relates to how you ended up from wherever you grew up to uh, an Army Ranger uh, and eventually inducted, I'm gonna, you know, into the Army Ranger Hall of Fame. Uh, that story in itself is pretty unique. And then um, for context for you and our listeners, uh, I hope for Al and I to then have a discussion around character as it relates to the military and then the bridge between military and civilian life. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and and, uh, and how you got started in life. Sure. Uh, well, Dan, I was born in Rome, Georgia, and... Uh, you know, my family, my, my mom and dad had uh, your basic minimum wage manual labor jobs. You know, neither graduated high school and, um, you know, didn't have much money. Uh, parents were divorced at, a, at an early age. And the one thing I learned from my mom as it relates to character is she taught me at a very young age to work really hard uh, because anything in life that was worth doing would require significant effort. And those words... I had to get her to explain them to me a few times. I was very young when she told them to me, but they they served me well in my military career and in my business career. And uh, I I got out of the army uh, or out of the high school and went right into the army because no one in my family had ever gone to college. And so I uh, ended up in Second Ranger Battalion in Fort Lewis, Washington, and I had I was received by. I won the lottery for leaders. Uh, they were great. They they welcomed me to the team, and they were all focused on the mission. And um, I, I, uh, I was mentored and coached and counseled, and they helped me learn and grow. And they taught me about public speaking, and they taught me about focusing on the mission and, and readiness and uh, sacrificing for the, for the, for the team and, and for the goals, for the, for the missions. And so then I, uh, I went to a selection uh, process and went to a special mission unit at Fort Bragg. I served there as an operator for a number of years, and then I went back to the Ranger Regiment to a different battalion, 3rd Battalion. I was a platoon sergeant there, eventually went back to the same special mission unit. Uh, and then I went to 1st Ranger Battalion to be a first sergeant. And uh, then I went to Central Washington University to be uh, an ROTC instructor, and I finished a master's degree in organization development. So I kind of bypassed the part. I did some college at night and on the weekends throughout my military time. And so... Um, uh, and then got right into business right after the Army. And... Uh, now, if, if I could go back, do you remember your first mentor? Like the first person that took you under his wing and, or her and, and, uh, and showed compassion for you and interest? Sure. Uh, well, I'll just tell you the first compassion I ever received by anybody in the Army was uh, I was in a selection process uh, in 2nd Ranger Battalion. It, they called it RIP at the time, Ranger Indoctrination Program. And it was this big weeding out process. Uh, we started with probably over a hundred people and we finished up with about 30 in maybe three weeks. Well, I had rolled my ankle pretty badly one morning during training and I went in 
to the aid station, and there was this young sergeant sitting there by the name of Stephen Trujillo, and he uh, he had uh, been you know, they had just come back from Grenada, and he was awarded the Silver Star, and he was pretty famous. He had been uh, uh, I didn't know all this at the time, but um, he had been at the State of the Union address and sat next to Nancy Reagan, uh, and they called him out and spoke about what he had done. Uh, you know, he was of uh, uh, Hispanic descent, young American, you know, patriot, and all that. Well, I didn't know any of that. I just knew I'm sitting in front of a medic and he's helping me with my foot. And uh, he, everybody's uh, at, at the chow hall having breakfast and he's sitting there eating sea ration crackers and peanut butter because he's running sick call and he can't go to the chow hall. And so he asks me, tell me about your foot. And so I explained what happened with my ankle and everything. And, and I sat down, took off my boots and he was examining me. And, and he says, well, Ranger, here's what's going on with you. And he explains my whole situation, and, and he was treating me like I was his brother. He was treating me like I belonged there, and he was treating me with respect. He was treating me as a peer, and it was the first time in the Army anybody had ever dealt with me like that because up until that point, everything in training is some sort of a pressure-type uh, thing intended to mold you into part of the team. And he was just talking to me like I was uh, like, I, like I was worthy. And, um, and ultimately he said, you got two schools of thought, you know, you, you can uh, go over to the holdover barracks and, and you can, you know, take the Motrin and give it a couple of weeks and you'll probably get a bad attitude hanging around those guys that quit. And you'll probably end up getting shipped off to a different kind of a unit, you know, Korea or whatever. He said, or you can take this Motrin and this ACE wrap and you can drive on and because, you know, what you've got hurts, but it's not going to cause you any long-term damage if you, if you tough it out. So roger that. So I grabbed it and I took off. And I never forgot that guy. And I've been in touch with him, like, you know, recently. And we've stayed in touch over the years. Great guy. So that was the first time it ever happened for me in the military. For civilians, we don't associate military with compassion, I don't think. I think, you know, the notion of showing compassion is almost what would maybe be seen as, as, um, as weakness. You went on to go and how long did you live in or how, how long were you in the military for? I was now? in for 20 years. I, I retired right at 20 years so I can get out and get into business. So that was your motivation even from the beginning? Did you want to get into business right from the military or, or no, when no, did that I, vision first kick in for you? Uh, it's an interesting question. I've told the story a bunch. I was, I was uh, at Fort Bragg. Uh, in my assault gear in the middle of August, and it was really hot. And we had been through this shoot house scenario uh, many, many times with, uh, it's a sand floor with tires. It's called tire house. And we we're blowing the doors of door charges and we're using flashbangs in the rooms and it gets a lot of black smoke. And and this is before anybody uh, really took, took seriously uh, a, a lot of the after effects of that sort of thing. And, you know, you're getting a lot of a lot of black up on your nose and you're blowing it out for days after the fact, but I was, it was just drenched in sweat and, and breathing in all that crap. And, uh, I thought to myself in that moment, one of these days I have to figure out a way to earn my living more with my brain and less with my back and my knees. And so that started me at some point down the education path through from uh, mentoring with one of my Sergeant majors, uh, a guy named Jody, who I respected a lot. And, um, yeah, so that that was kind of the moment where I said, okay, I'm going to have to figure something out for my my, my long game because uh, I'm not doing this till I'm, I'm not going to do this till I'm sixty. You know? uh, before we transition to your uh, civilian uh, business work uh, life, were, were there any um, leaders uh, 
in the military that you were under that particularly had a big impact on the way in which you lead and manage today. And that could be a leader that is awful from lessons learned, like, I don't want to be that way, or or uh, a leader that was incredible and something that you espouse to. Um, anybody come to mind as far as stories? There are a lot of them, uh, but one one of them that just came to mind just now, and you mentioned compassion. Uh, there was a sergeant major we had named Dick Davis, and um, you know he's retired from the military now, so I could talk about it. And uh, there was a situation where somebody had had a, and he was a Vietnam veteran uh, also. So he was, you know, uh, of a generation of, you know, eons of combat experience, whereas the rest of us had, you know, little to none in that moment. And, you know, got a little bit over time. But um, Dick Davis was was kind of addressing something where uh, some folks were talking trash about uh, a guy who had had a, a weak moment uh, in a combat situation, you know. And uh, people were kind of talking trash about that a guy and um, his reputation was being affected by it. And he said, look, he goes, let me tell you about, you know, what we did in combat was a snapshot. He said, in Vietnam, it went on for, you know, your entire tour. A guy could be an absolute hero uh, for 364 days. And on that 365th day, he could be having a bad moment and a bad day and not perform the way he normally did. You can't judge the whole guy by that one little moment where, where he had a moment of, of, of stumble, of you know, stutter stepping in, 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 a, in a really tense life and death situation. It just it builds on you mentally. And he just had a moment. And you can't judge a guy on that. And that kind of maturity was. Um, just amazing to me, you know? Um, and there was another one where, uh, General Garrison was the, uh, was the commander and he was talking to us about a couple of guys who had gotten in trouble over something. And he was, I'm sorry, uh, correction, uh, General Bargewell, he passed away not that long ago, but when he was the commander, a couple of guys had gotten in trouble over something overseas. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately it was one of those situations where if, if you got in trouble, Keep in mind, you know, you might sometimes travel around the world by yourself or with two other, one other guy or two other guys. And so, and a lot of times the rules aren't crystal clear. Like when you're standing in a formation of 750 of your best friends, you know, you're overseas by yourself. There's a lot of gray area, you know, working interagency type stuff. It wasn't gray army, a green army all the time. These guys got in trouble. And if it's the kind of trouble where you colored outside the lines when you were trying to accomplish a mission, and it was all about the mission, well, they would typically back you in a situation like that. But if you got in trouble and it was because, you know, it had to do with putting money in your pocket or something or getting late or something like that, well, that kind of stuff would, would that trouble would tend to stick to you, right? And you, you're, you're accountable for that. And so he, General Bardswell, did something that I had never seen before in a leader. Uh, everybody was kind of on pens and needles on the edge of their chair, waiting to see what was going to happen to these two guys who had gotten in trouble for uh, something personal. It was the latter of the two situations I described, and they deserved to, you know, to get something for it. And I don't remember exactly what they did. It doesn't matter. But um, he said something that was amazing. He said, look, right now I'm extremely angry about what happened. And I don't want to make a decision that's going to affect their careers and their families for the rest of their lives. 
while I'm angry. So I'm going to wait until I'm not angry, and then I'll make a decision about what punishment they receive. Does anybody have any questions? And no, you know, nobody had any questions. I was amazed by that. By you talk about compassion and foresight, uh, that to me was the epitome. Again, a, 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 a legendary leader who was a Vietnam vet as an enlisted man, special forces enlisted man, and then went uh, to, uh, to OCS, and, and he was a colonel at the time he said that. But those kinds of leaders have a lasting effect. And there, there are many others, you know, uh, Sergeant Major Mike Hall in the Ranger Regiment was another, you know, very, very uh, prolific um, kind of leader who was cerebral uh, and um, just su such a great leader to learn from. And there's there's so many I could I could name names all day long, but uh, I was fortunate um, uh, to, to be exposed to them and to be mentored by them. You get exposure to. Uh, probably a disproportionate amount of leaders in the military, you know, that are held to a higher standard than, say, I think in a lot of businesses here in America and civilian life. When did you finally make the transition? When did you decide to step out of the universe that you knew so, so well that you grew up in, literally since high school, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. What, that was everything I had done in my adult life. You're, yeah. And to, to make that transition, I mean, that must have been a little frightening. And how did you do it? Tell us that story. Well, I mean, growth only occurs when you get outside your comfort zone. Yeah. If you just keep doing what you've always done, you're probably going to be what you've always been. And so I, yeah. I, I felt like I just had this inherent feeling that I could do better financially for my family. And from a career perspective, I, I, I could have a, a, a much less limited ceiling if I got into the civilian business space somehow, uh, you know, because as an NCO, you know, the pay chart is what it is. Right. And, um, you know, uh, so uh, I, I made that decision while I was in first range battalion as a first sergeant. And then I went off to this master's program and uh, uh, you know, we did a really good job with that ROTC program at Central Washington University. So we worked hard there, but I was doing my master's on the side and uh, I was selected for promotion to sergeant major while I was in that master's program. And I declined because it would have obligated me to another three years. And I was, I was, my mind was made up. I was going to finish this master's degree and get out and get into business. And so uh, I stuck with my plan. Why business? Like, why did you think you could do it? I, I where'd you get that confidence? You are, you are a ranger. You're yeah. in the military. I mean, yeah. What made you think you could go out and, and start a business? And where did you start? And how did you figure out where to go, begin? Well, I was going to start out doing uh, consulting and organization development because that was what I studied. That was my master's degree. And so I was going to do it as a consulting, uh, and, you know, as a consultant in the beginning. And uh, what happened is uh, some friends uh, started a company called Triple Canopy. 9-11 happened while I was, you know, about halfway through my master's degree. And, and so I knew that this industry was going to just be on fire. And so one way or another, uh, I would probably end up in it. And so Triple Canopy started up and I was the first employee hired by the company founders. And I had a, a small piece of equity and that company went from zero to a hundred million in the first year. And it went to 450 million in about, uh, I would say about four and a half or five years. And so that little slice of equity turned out to be a pretty good deal for my family and I. Now I worked my butt off uh, in, in, in recruiting and deploying uh, that was sort of the part of the company that I was in charge of. 
And uh, I learned, I, I got to put that whole organization development degree to work because, you know, I mapped out all the key business processes and wrote proposals and, you know, did employment agreements and hiring and uh, rotational staffing. We had two full-time travel agents that could issue tickets like in our office. So I learned a lot about business in a short amount of time. And then uh, my current business partners and I ended up going into business together uh, and, uh, you know, so we could own much more of the business. And uh, we we uh, we took um, that, that company is Patriot Group, Patriot Group International. Yep, that's my current company. I'm wearing the shirt today. <laughs> I know it looks good. <laughs> Thank you. Tell, tell us about Patriot uh, Group International. Yeah. So, so what what motivated us to do this is that Greg Craddock uh, and I served together in Third Ranger Battalion. So I'd known him since the early '90s, and he had gone off and worked within the U.S. government within the intelligence community for for several years. And then, then was with a contract, and we would get together and talk about going uh, going into business once in a while. And we had a lot of different kinds of ideas, but ultimately, within our industry, within this, you know, overseas high threat protection and training and uh, signal intelligence and all the, these companies that did this mission support work, some of them were doing it better than others. A lot of them were not doing it well in terms of how they treated. The folks that did the work, the guys that deployed, there was a lot of, um, you know, treating them like uh, common laborers and that they were disposable uh, because so many folks were available to do the work. And, you know, there was only so many contracts. And so uh, we felt like if we if we focus on the mission and we treat everybody with respect the way we would want to be treated, uh, I mean, cause, because they're just like us. You know, we're, we're those guys. We're the rifle and body armor guys just like them. We just happen to own a small company. And so that mission focus and respect ethos uh, attracted talent over and over again. And, and that focus on the mission attracted customers, you know, customers like working with folks who are focused on their mission. And so uh, it, it, has, it has helped us grow, uh, you know, to around 400 people. And now we're, uh, we're probably going to double our growth by the end of 2024. Uh, just based on a bunch of recent uh, commercial work we've won and uh, more government work that we expect to win. How did you guys, uh, how did you and your partners come to, did you end up defining um, kind of the culture uh, of your company? Was there a way that you came to it? Was it informed by your military background? How, how have you articulated and created that as a, I mean, culture, I, I've had really senior business folks that I respect tremendously say it's, you know, culture isn't the number one thing. It's the number one, two, and three thing. Um, how have you instilled that in the Patriot Group International uh, amongst all your employees and contractors? Well, so there are three business partners. Uh, Rob Whitfield is our COO. He's a former Marine Scout sniper who uh, worked in the contracting space quite a bit uh, to include within the intelligence community. And then Greg Craddock, as I told you, our CEO uh, from the Ranger Regiment. and. Uh, and I'm the president, and we all agree uh, that if we treat everyone with respect and we focus on the mission, we're going to be doing it better than most people in our space. Excuse me, most people in our space, and we just kind of agreed on that that value, uh, that ethos from the very beginning. And it's really just a matter of modeling it. And so it's like it's it's not just showing up. So we have folks that are deploying. And uh, I'll show up uh, to almost every single deployment brief and talk to them about these exact same things. And, you know, hey, we got a new guy coming onto the team. Help him succeed. 
you know, if you see a weak area, rather than criticize, help him fix whatever the issue is, you know, because, it, it, you know, you're overseas and it's your team and, and you all need to be on the same team, focused on the same mission and being indispensable, you know, helping in every way that you can. If you wouldn't mind, I'm going to share with you how we define character. Sure. And, um, and this, this is informed uh, from the seminal research done by Fred Keel, who wrote a book called Return on a Character. And he went in and studied um, the, he called them virtuoso CEOs versus self-centered CEOs. And in his studying of, of, of what differentiated the two, he came away with four characteristics, which were defined as character. Um, and he, he, and we borrowed from, from Fred's book as our definition of character. And, and it, it's in four, four pillars. One is integrity, uh, telling the truth, keeping promises, acting consistently with principles and values and beliefs, walking the talk and standing up for what is right. So that's how integrity is defined. Responsibility, taking responsibility for personal choices, admitting mistakes and failures, embracing responsibility for serving others, leaving the world a better place. And then these are the two other characteristics that don't often go hand in hand, I think, that surprises people on me, and that is forgiveness, letting go of one's mistakes, letting go of others' mistakes, focusing on what is right, versus what is wrong. Uh -huh. And then finally, compassion, empathy with others, asking for help, empowering others, actively caring for others, and commitment to others' development. So when we go out and survey the market, we're looking for these four character habits. And we look to measure each one of them, and that informs our degree of confidence in which they should end up in our portfolio. Now, I love that. How do you, how do you, how does that square with your experience um, in the military and how the military, uh, I, to me, I have a feeling the military would have more to contribute to this. And I, I want to find a way to get the military more involved in, in our discussions around character, uh, because I think understanding how it's developed in the military is incredibly informative, but then also how it's brought into the private sector too and prioritized. I'd just love to hear your reaction to, to, to our definition. Different parts of the military and different parts of business, you know, do all those things to varying degrees, well or not. And um, I, I feel like uh, mostly uh, the leaders that I was exposed to uh, were on the, on the right side of that. And I, I, uh, I was fortunate you know, when you when you have a higher purpose, when your higher purpose is more than just making money, for example, in the business world, you know, when when you've got a mission that you 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 need to accomplish because, you know, if you accomplish that mission, these Americans are going to get to come home that you're going to rescue, or, you know, these bad guys aren't going to come and attack us here because we're taking the fight to them over there, um, and you know, you you leave your your wife and your kids. And you get on the plane and go to where the mission is, and now you have to focus on this thing that's that's it's it's more important than anything else going on in the world in that moment. And so you have a chance to really do a lot of concentrated focus on all of these things you just described. 
because you are in it. And your commitment to the outcome, um, it's it's only possible if you have that level of dedication and, you know, uh, which probably is a part of the character that you're describing. So um, is is there a specific question you have related to the military part of it? I would say the, the thing that interests me is as it relates to character defined. To me, an expression of character in the military is almost 10x what it would be in the civilian life, only because your life is literally on the line. I mean, these men and women are showing up and they're, like you said, get on the airplane and they are going somewhere that's, that they've been assigned to do. They're trusting the, the, the order of, of uh, how decisions are made and they're in their livingness, you know, in, in a way that, um, you know, plays out either for good or for ill, if they either, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, follow the code of, of, of the character definition or not. And, and to me, the military um, example is the ultimate example of what, on the good side of what we, what we really need, what, what, what's valuable when it comes to character. And we don't often get to play it out. But, but how specifically, how do you form this? Like for me, one of the things that's interesting about this definition is to have uh, forgiveness and compassion as part of it. You know, when we think from a civilian st standpoint, we don't think of forgiveness and compassion in, as it relates to the military. Uh, speak to me a little bit about that from your perspective in the military and your experiences as to what, you know, how that has played in. It's not just integrity and responsibility, you know, how, do, how, how have you seen that played out? Well, I mean, if you invest years of, of training pipeline and, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in, in these teams uh, to get them to a certain level of proficiency and you have them built and they're this well-oiled machine that can do all of these combat tasks more about the people and the teamwork than it is about the technology, if one of them they're all humans and they all have human experiences and human moments and things that aren't perfect. And so uh, you're dealing with imperfect humans and you have to allow for that. And, uh, you know, it, if somebody needs coaching to get to where they need to be, well, as a leader, it's your job to provide that coaching, not to just cut them away and tell somebody to send you a new one, because it it's an investment to get them to a certain point anyway. And you know, I think the best leaders I have ever worked with all really cared about the people. And they saw them as people. And they saw them as humans who were imperfect and all needed um, some coaching. But I, and I have to tell you, it's the, the, the key to every bit of this is that it has to start at the top of the organization. If the commander is someone that everyone respects, because of who they are and and how they behave and how they conduct themselves, uh, you know, um, then it's easy to respect. So I'll give you an example. Uh, General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal. So when he was the Ranger Regiment commander, um, you know, they had this standard, he, he, uh, well, his favorite word was privation. And what that meant was the people that we would be fighting at some point, this is before 9-11, they would uh they kind they came typically would come from uh 
countries where they didn't have a lot of creature comforts. Hardship and privation was a way of life for a lot of the people that we would end up fighting. Well, we're Americans from the soft, one of the softest cultures on the planet. And so how do you take a guy from, from video game land from the couch and turn him into a guy who's hard enough to be out in the elements and carry in a, a big heavy load and with a lot of danger and to close with and destroy the enemy? How do you take him from that to that? Well, it's through privation and and given a lot of doses of that on a repeated basis. And so one of his favorite ways of doing that was uh, really long road marches uh, with a lot of weight and a long way to go. And so, you know, uh, weekly 12-mile road marches. I think we had a quarterly 20-miler, and every six months we had to do a 30-miler. And he was the regimental commander. Uh, he, he only needed to meet those requirements himself, you know. But what he would do is, Whoever was doing a 30-miler in the whole regiment, and there were three battalions, you know, and regimental headquarters, whoever was doing the 30-miler, he would show up and do it with them. Yeah, and Sergeant Major Hall would be there too. And so, you know, think about how many 30-milers that guy did in a year. And this is pre-9-11. So, and, and everybody knew that he was doing this. And so that simple act of embracing the suck and leading the way with the privation. It wasn't just something he talked about and made other people do. He led by example. So that's an example of how when you talk about, you know, people can say the word culture all they want and they can have all these PowerPoint slides and, you know, all these initiatives. But when you have a leader that's out there doing it with you all the time, more than he has to, that's an example, you know, uh, you know, his, his fitness example, um, uh, you know, Harvard educated. I mean, you know, all those things, uh, it, it's a lot to look up to. Thank you for sharing that. That's an amazing story. Uh, inspiring, incredibly inspiring. Um, it informs the way I need to be behaving. Uh, I, and we need stories like that as examples in our life every day. Um, the, the transition from civilian life, I, I have a cousin who um, was this incredible, incre incredible leader. He was a ranger. Um, he was in Iraq. Uh, he, he, led a, he led a group of men. Uh, he was on the front lines. He saw life action. He, uh, incredible person of character and honor, I think, uh, and was proud of his military service. Uh, he got married. And, uh, realized kind of like you, he needed to provide and he came back to, um, America and he got a job and he was sitting in a cubicle with no direct report, uh, basically, mm -hmm. uh, starting from zero again after doing what he did, which would, for most men, he, he had led at a level that no one would ever lead at, you know, and he was, yeah. he was, he was quite young. Um, tell me a little bit about how, uh, your experience with the transition from military to civilian life and, and how, um, how best to do that, you know? Yeah. I, I think two things are important. Uh, well, I kind of had a little bit of a, um, of an easier way because I got into a company, uh, Triple Canopy, and it was a bunch of the same people I'd worked with in the military. So I didn't, I, we kind of referred to it as the halfway house because you didn't really have to give up 
everything that you knew and loved because a lot of it was right there around. It's just in terms of people that you you knew and you respected and you liked being around. And so um, the halfway house, you know, in, in government contracting, uh, having a company where people can come from various branches of the service and work together uh, and, 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 and depend on each other and have the same ethos as it relates to focusing on the mission and being a professional, being skilled, being fit, all of those things that mattered in the military still matter here. Uh, I'll give an example. Uh, there was a guy who was a seven, he was a Marine, and then he was a 747 pilot for seven years. And he quit being a 747 pilot, accident-free, successful, to go back into government contracting and uh, do protective operations overseas because he missed being on a team. It's that primal. Yeah. So our whole goal is to recreate that, that team experience where we, you know, we try to be the best team anybody's ever been on. And, and it's, it's all those same, you know, and, and we even ask, you know, what's the best team you've ever been on prior to government contract? And people talk about the sports team in high school where they won the state championship. Why, why was it a great team? Why did, why, what, what made it great for you? And how did it feel? And how did people treat each other? And how committed were they to the mission, you know, to your objectives? And it always is everybody was committed to the group more than themselves. And it was always, you know, you always get those kinds of answers. And so our our goal is to try to recreate that all the time. And so you think about people use these terms like corporate social responsibility, you know, and they pick some pet thing like we're going to save the manatee or whatever the thing is. And then they say, look how much money we threw at saving the manatee and they publish it and, you know, they want to get some kind of an award for it and get some notoriety about it. And there's all kinds of social media about it and people feel good about it. For me, the most responsible thing a corporation can do is to create an environment where every person, they feel like a valued member of a great team with an important mission. If you can get those three things right, it will be a special experience in their life for as long as they're on that team. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree with you more um, because all these organizations, military and outside the military, are made up of humans, right? And, and to me, one of the greatest impacts um, you could have from a DSG, whatever, you know, pick your category is making it, it, it enabling for individuals to feel good about themselves and feel like they're contributing to a team. It affects how they interact with their colleagues. It affects how they get in the car and drive on the public streets that we all have to drive on. It affects how they go home to their children or their family every day. I mean, it's the, the single biggest impact uh, I think there is, as organizations can give to the collective as a, as a whole. I think the piece that you just mentioned about a team is is one of the missing pieces in probably a lot of of, of businesses as uh, as making it a priority. And in 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 the military seems to be so focused on the collective, not the individual. Uh, and and then so that gives any anybody that you hire for the military here they've been kind of pre pre-coded, if you will, to that winning orientation. 
Uh, it might be tough for some average business folks to implement that, you know, yeah, yeah. And I uh, think your original, that. I think your original question had to do with transitioning. And so that, that whole, the team thing is primal. It goes all the way back to when, uh, you know, people were part of tribes and, and, you know, in, in a primitive culture and surviving met carrying your weight within the teams, you know, within the tribe so that you don't get ostracized. And, and so, um, it, 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 it's, it, and you see it today where people, they try to affiliate with groups in a lot of different ways, whether it's the sports team or the church or, or their, you know, whatever they've got going. There's a lot of group things, sororities and fraternities. It's all back to, it's very primal. And so if we can do it in a work setting, to me, that that's, you're harnessing something very powerful. And so the team piece, I think, is critical for former military folks that are transitioning. Secondly, uh, they're used to having a, something that is a, a higher purpose kind of a mission, you know. Uh, and so I've watched guys be very successful if they can get into environments where they're supporting something that's a cause they can believe in, you know, whether it's a veteran-related cause or it's a climate-related cause or it's a, you know, the, saving the Afghans cause, whatever the cause is. If if they uh, if they can get involved in something that makes them feel like they're they're um, uh, they're part of a team that's achieving something uh, bigger than themselves, that's what they're used to. Speaking of Afghans, yeah, tell me tell me about your your connection with Afghanistan these days. I was asked to help with some situations uh, uh, as it related to the, the Afghanistan withdrawal, and different veteran groups were getting involved. Uh, in in helping do evacuations and things like that, and so we got involved. And uh, Glenn Beck's organization, Mercury One, uh, and the Nazarene Fund, that and also uh, E3 Ranch Foundation is another entity uh, that was was involved. I went to Macedonia. Uh, we were going to prepare to receive uh, airplanes full of Afghan refugees. That you know they were trying to get them out of the airport in Kabul, and they <laughs> needed places to send them. And so we were going to try to go set that up, dealing with the embassy and with local government. And I had a team of people with me. And at one point, we broke up into a couple of groups. There's there's this girl that's stuck outside the gates of the Kabul airport with 150 other schoolgirls, and they were in seven buses. And they were they were from the Asian School for Women in Bangladesh, but because of COVID, they had to send them back to Afghanistan. And so they went back to Afghanistan, and then the Taliban took over. And so their school, uh, Asian School for Women, they uh, got a charter airplane and they got these buses laid on and they're trying to get these buses of seven, seven buses of 150 girls through the Taliban into the airport. And they tried like eight times over a period of five days to get past the Taliban. And they just they just kept getting, you know, they were, they were beating up the drivers and harassing them and putting guns in their face and telling them they were going to kill them if they saw them again and all that. So this went on and on and on. Man, hats off to this Asian school for women for, you know, laying on all that transportation. It had to be crazy expensive and, and dangerous. And uh, but they just got stuck. And meanwhile, back in Nebraska, Azada Pygir, the older sister uh, of asthma, she just finished her uh, MBA in international banking and finance. And um, she was calling. She's working 22 hours a day, calling everybody in our government to try to get help for her family. Father, mother, little brother, they're all still there. And he's a former Afghan National Army lieutenant colonel. So, And he was Hazara. They're Hazara minority, so they're targeted uh, by the Pashtun majority. And so, um, ultimately, uh, Azada, the older sister, she got a LinkedIn premium subscription and facial recognition software 
and she started scanning images of her father with U.S. Special Forces uh, and other kinds of troops. And then she went on LinkedIn and started messaging people that she found. And one of those was a Special Forces officer named Marcus Ruzik, who had worked with her dad. And uh, so she gets a hold of Marcus, who gets a hold of a guy named Chris Sims, who was a former Special Forces guy that owns a glass company in Atlanta. He was with my team in Macedonia. Just jumped in the jumped in the in, in the thing, right? And uh, along with a guy, uh, a former infantry uh, and contractor, a friend of mine named Gino Garcia, uh, professional baseball player named Blaine Boyer, who's a part of E3 Ranch Foundation, uh, and uh, an interpreter, Afghan American lady named Soraya Nawabi, who's a friend of ours, and had helped us in business in Afghanistan, Patriot Group. So we've got this car full of people, and a guy named Chris Schmitz, a former Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel uh, that I taught ROTC with. So we're all there. We're all in, in, in Macedonia. Right. And they're going down the road when Chris gets this call from Azada. Hey, my sister's stuck outside the airport. So they start communicating with asthma and uh, they, they tell her to, you know, send us a map pen, take some pictures without your flash on. And they were talking to her. Soraya was talking to her in Dari so that people weren't really aware that she was talking to Americans. And she's feeding us information. She was stuck between two concentric rings of Taliban. And in front of a Taliban building, and it was about one o'clock in the morning, and she had texted her sister and said, this is different than before. This feels different. They're starting to clear out all the people. And, and it was like, it was as though they were clearing out the witnesses for what was about to happen to these 150 girls. And so she's got this ominous feeling, asthma does, and she says, I, you know, I may not make it. It, it, it. I just want you to know what's about to happen, what's going on here, what they're setting up. And so we, our team got that information and we had a friend named Francisco who knew somebody in the Pentagon. And so they got all this information to him, the location information, the description information, and the Pentagon gets it to the commander of the 82nd and they get it to the captain at the gate and then negotiate with the Taliban and they get these seven buses of girls in. And they're all high-fiving and they're all just like on a cloud that they finally got into the airport, except asthma. She is losing it because three of those girls have been taken by the Taliban. And so she's running around trying to find out who's in charge. And she's talking to everybody in a green suit. Uh, hey, uh, there's three more girls out there and we need to get them. And so she just kept on and kept on and kept on. Eventually, back on the phone with Chris and Gino in, uh, in the car there in Macedonia. And they got the same information. Uh, the, the captain at the gate couldn't do anything without it coming through the chain of command. So we did the they they did the same communication chain to the Pentagon, did the chain to the commander and back down to the guy at the gate and then negotiated to get these three girls in. And uh, about, you know, four or five days later, planes, trains and automobiles and different bases and, you know, seven times going through getting their um, biometrics checked and vaccinations and all the screening for COVID and all that stuff. And they're all, they're here in the United States. And I'm getting it on, on a signal. We're texting. And I figure out that asthma is at the Dulles airport, uh, uh, holiday Inn. And so my wife and I hopped in my truck and we drove up there and, uh, we saw her every day for like four or five days. And eventually, uh, she, she of all those girls, she was going to be going to Canada because she had been accepted to a college there. And, uh, um, but just a clarification, all yeah. girls, all the girls ended up in, in America. Yep. Every one of them. Wow. Yeah. 
And so, uh, but Asma was was scheduled to go to Canada because she had a, a Canadian visa. And so they had her separated from all the rest of them. And she was with IOM. All the rest of them were being handled by the U.S. government. And, and, and Asma was being handled by IOM, which is the subcontractor for the, for the, uh, the UN, I guess. And they handle refugee movements. And so she was going to be having to get on a plane at five the next morning and go to Canada. But, but her college had already started and she didn't have any money because the Taliban controlled everything her family had for assets. So she was going to go to Canada and sit in some camp because there was nothing for her there. And I said, well, you know, my wife, and we were, took her shopping for clothes and got her a phone and food and all this stuff. And after several days of that, you know, my wife, you know, she said, you know, I, Asma was in a, in a dressing room trying on some clothes and she wanted Andrea to stand right outside the door and not, not move away from the door because she had this abandonment anxiety, you know, and she had all this post-traumatic stress going on, a whole lot of issues. And my wife, she said, you know, I just want to scoop her up and help her. And I was like, oh, thank you. I was just waiting on you to say that, you know. And so um, we offered, uh, she just wanted to be safe. She just wanted to feel safe, you know. And, and a single Muslim girl traveling without her family uh, was not looked upon favorably by the families in, in these camps as well. And so that she was getting a lot of mean mugging from people uh, that were in the Holiday Inn even because she was a minority and she was by herself and all that. And so um, uh, she said, you know, I would, feel, I would feel very safe if my sister could join me. And her sister was in Nebraska. And we said, tell her, come on. So she landed in Dallas. We picked her up. We went to the IOM and explained who we were and we weren't human traffickers. And I gave them all my contact information and they went through the right process with the State Department and they, they released asthma. And uh, so she stayed with us for a year and now she's in Virginia Tech. And Azra, uh, she's got her bank account, credit card, driver's license in Virginia, and she's interviewing for jobs. And I'm taking her for an interview uh, this afternoon as a financial analyst um, uh, with a company in uh, Arlington. And so, uh, yeah, and so... What's going on with asthma is uh, she's got her asylum approved, indefinite, and uh, we have a, a GoFundMe set up to help with her, her to pay for her college at Virginia Tech. And so uh, uh, if you go to GoFundMe and you look up asthma Pygear, A-S-M-A, last name Pygear, P-A-I-G-E-E-R, that's the GoFundMe for her education. And uh, uh, we've got her covered for this year, and now we're working on the out years. And uh, so, uh, and then there's operationkids.org in uh, Salt Lake City. They will take uh, uh, donations, you know, through their 501c3 if people want the tax deduction. That's fantastic. Wow. Thank you. I mean, you talk about a story. Those are the stories that kind of are, you're not hearing about those stories, frankly. You know, since the Afghan uh, debacle, if I, I, I have a deep love, as I mentioned to you, for the Afghan people and Afghanistan as a whole. Uh, so it's good to hear. These two girls were raised, unlike most Afghan girls, they were raised to be independent and educated and strong and equal in stature with, with males. And that that has served them very well here. Uh, you know, Asma's doing great in school. Azda is just crushing her job interviews, you know, and, and very good. You know, um, the things that you would think that a, a person should do to be confident with your posture and your eye contact and your firm handshake and all she, she, she's just, uh, she's crushing it. And she's, uh, she's a financial analyst. She's worked in uh, Dubai and Singapore. Uh, she has her MBA in international banking and finance. And so she's, 
she's doing real well in these interviews. I expect her to get interviewed uh, or to, uh, to be hired very soon and um, to be able to host her family uh, who is here in the U.S. now. Thanks for doing what you're doing, but I have a feeling that you're not looking for thanks because you probably get a lot of benefit and joy from just being around these two girls, it, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, we, we I, my family can't help them all, but we feel like, you know, we can do a lot of good for this family. And uh, so uh, we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to help them. And um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it'll bring a tear to your eye every time, you know, every time there's a milestone, like a birthday or you know, um, uh, we're having a lot of birthdays and we're having anniversaries and, you know, all these things of that, you know, they've been around for so, so long now that we're starting to have these recurring events. And it's just, uh, it's very heartwarming to be able to help, help somebody in such a significant way. And it's, uh, they're so, so grateful. They're just incredibly grateful. Well, my time in Afghanistan uh, caused me to, to develop, uh, this, bizarre, still unexplainable affection for the Afghan people that I, I still to this day don't understand. Um, and they're, they, they have a way of, of being, having such pride in just yeah. their own, um, their own culture of their country and, and how they, how they hold themselves is inspiring. And, um, I'm thrilled that you're doing what you're doing. Well, how. Thank you so much for being with me on this show and sharing your story, sharing uh, your insights, our character, uh, your experience in the business world, and and finally, just the story of asthma and your efforts uh, collectively there to do the right thing in a situation that I think we can all agree upon is incredibly sad and messy and needs a lot of care and love. Um, yeah. So... For all of you that are listening, uh, I'll say, give us the GoFundMe one one more time just to make sure we close out and make sure that, that people have that. Yep. It's asthma. Go, go to GoFundMe and type in A-S-M-A, asthma, in Pygear, P-A-I-G-E-E-R. And that's her GoFundMe. And I will get you set up with her, Dan. Uh, she, uh, you will love talking to her and you'll love talking to Azda. I'll, I'll get you set up with both of them. They're both great public speakers. Uh, they speak English very well, and uh, you will enjoy the conversations because it's it's about a lot of the same things we're talking about right now. Okay. Well, thank you for being a champion for character, and I appreciate you being on the show with us. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been fun.